Proverbs chapter number 24 tonight. And I'd like to read just three verses this evening, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer over these prayer requests that we have uh, offered unto Him. Proverbs chapter 24, verse number 10. And I want you to listen for the pattern that is found in verses 10, 11, and 12. Solomon, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, is writing and says, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain. If thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the hearts consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? Let's pray together. Father, we love you this evening. What a blessing it is to be with your people. I'm thankful, Lord, that on December 1st, 1997, your people became my people. Lord, I'm glad that uh, this church family that has gathered in this place in the warm fellowship of the Spirit of God can come together to offer praise unto you for your goodness and grace and to deliver these requests publicly, Lord, before our brothers and sisters. But, Lord, we're not delivering them simply to them, but rather to your throne room, for that's the place of action. That's the place of change. That's the place of power. And we, Lord, do ask that you would move and work in these matters that have been mentioned uh, the vast majority of them, Lord, even even if we knew what to do, we couldn't do anything about them. They're bigger than us. But, Lord, none of them is bigger than you. None of these problems is too large for your providential hand. So I pray that you would meet with them according to thy will. And, Lord, we pray especially for the spiritual needs that have been mentioned. Lord, we know that if our earthly tabernacle of this dwelling were dissolved, we have a home made in heaven, or a home in heaven not made with hands. But there are spiritual needs in the hearts and lives of so many that we love beyond what temporal needs there are. And we're asking you to save some that are lost. And, Lord, we're asking that you would get the attention of some that are astray and that are drifting. Lord, that you would uphold those that might be tempted to uh, quit, tempted to walk away. Uh, And Father, we just ask that you would meet these spiritual needs, particularly in their lives and ours. And we pray that you do it in such a way that we'd stand back and give praise and honor and glory that we'd be compelled to seeing your evident hand in these matters. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the preaching tonight. May it speak to hearts for the glory of Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. In Proverbs chapter number 24, Solomon is writing, giving as he does throughout the entirety of the book of Proverbs, or the vast majority of it, a catalog of wisdom uh, for those who would pick up this tome and read it. When you move through that passage of Scripture, I, I was reading through it, came to verse number 10, and I want you to notice a pattern that develops. It's mentioned three times, and I want you to pay attention to it with me, and I want you to think about what Solomon is, is speaking about here. He says in verse 10, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Verse number 11, he says, if thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain. And then in verse 12, he says, if thou sayest, behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it, and he that keepeth thy soul doth not he know it, and shall he not render to every man according to his works. The presence of that little word if in these verses reveals to us that there is a disclosing quality to what Solomon is talking about here. It is most evident, I think, in verse 10, because he essentially says this, that 
If in the day of adversity you faint, that is a sign, that is a symptom, that is a revelation of a diminishing strength in your life. In other words, he's saying there are certain things that you can look at in a person's life and they reveal something about that individual. When I thought about Solomon's life, I thought about all that Solomon was equipped with. Solomon, of course, was the king over Israel. He was the last king before the kingdom was divided. He was the son of David. He was the uh, penman for the book of Psalms and for the book of Song of Solomon, for the book of Ecclesiastes. He is a central figure in the history of Israel. I wish I could tell you that his life, illustrious as it was, was free of problems, but it was not. In fact, if you study Solomon's life, you know very well that his life sort of ends in disgrace. It ends in disobedience to God. It ends in idolatry. But when you think about his life and you think about these verses in the context of his life, Solomon's saying, hey, if you want to know something about who somebody really is, look at these three things in their life. Look at the way they respond during times of trouble. Look at the way they respond when someone needs help. And look at the way they respond when they're called into question for their actions. I want to use a word here that is going to be the theme of our message. And I want you to really get it because I think it's a a fundamental word that is missing in the modern vocabulary. And it's the word character. I think what Solomon's talking about here is a person's character. Character, one famous preacher said, is what you are in the dark. Character is the way you conduct yourself simply because you believe it to be correct. Not because it derives to you any personal benefit. Not because it pleases anyone around you or or gains you an advantage in your situation. But character is what you believe to be right in life and how you conduct yourself relative to those beliefs. And I thought about Solomon and everything that he had. And I'll just be honest to, with you. I, I thought to myself, I don't know that this is the guy, Brother Ken, that really ought to be talking about character. He is a man that has deep flaws in his character. But I think in some ways he might be the perfect person to talk to us about character because he knows more than anybody just what weak character can do in your life. I thought about his history and, you know, sometimes by example we can learn some things. I thought about Solomon as a king and and I wrote down these three statements. Solomon was a king, number one, with wealth in his coffers. Can I read a verse to you out of 1 Kings chapter 10? There's many such verses we could read in our King James Bible that would illustrate this same truth, but this is pretty succinct. The Bible says in 1 Kings 10.23, So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches. Now that's about as plain as it gets. Solomon was more wealthy than any other king that had ever lived up to that time. And I think, if we read it correctly, any other king that has lived from that time until now. We're told in the day that we live in that economic equity, that helping people financially is the greatest gift and the greatest honor and the greatest blessing we can do unto them. But can I remind you that a man that had more money than any other king that has ever lived, uh, he, he closed his life in disgrace. All of his wealth did not keep him right with God. Can I tell you something? The sin problem is not an economic problem. 
Now, it's true there can be economic consequences to a sin problem. But the sin problem is not an economic problem. You don't have to be rich to be righteous. And being poor does not make you polluted. Our character can transcend our economic situation. And you and I probably know mountains of people that that has been the case. I was raised in a comfortable situation. We weren't wealthy, but we never worried or wondered where we were going to find our next meal. But I've got family, and you probably got family that was a little lower on the economic scale. And so many of them that knew the Lord and walked with Him and found satisfaction and contentment in life, despite their absence of prosperity... It reminds me of this, that character is more important than coinage. What you are is more important than what you have. So he was a king with wealth in his coffers. Then number two, I thought about this. He was a man with wisdom, Brother Charlie, in his counsel. The end of verse 23 says this. Well, I'll read the entirety of it. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. Now, some will say that the economic disparities existing in society today, and I don't deny that there are disparities in economic situations today. You can look at Bill Gates' bank account and look at mine, and you'll see there's economic disparities in the world today. But they would say that the reason for that is not so much economic as it is educational. In other words, that the reason that people are not advancing in life is because they're not properly educated. I'm not against education. I believe a man ought to try to be as educated as he possibly can be. I think we are learning in this day that we live that education is not synonymous with a school system. It is not synonymous with a university. But it is more dependent upon the ambition of the individual in the information age that we live in. In other words, you don't have to sit in a dusty classroom anymore, Brother Tim, to learn something. You've got the Internet. I've got the Internet sitting in front of us. And we've got all the information that we might ever possibly need in front of us. And some would say, well, it's an it's a educational disparity is causing the problem in the world that we live in. But here's a man who had more wisdom than any other man that had ever lived. In fact, there's only one other man more wise than him, and that was wisdom incarnate. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. But apart from him, Solomon was the wisest man ever to live. And yet he ended his life in disgrace. Tells me this, that uh, not only is uh, character more important than coinage, character is more important than counsel. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't have the character to live correctly in light of that knowledge, it ain't going to change anything about you. I heard a phrase the other day, and you no doubt have heard it many times in your life, people being educated beyond their intelligence. We have a whole world full of people today educated beyond their intelligence. And can I say this? We have people walking around today that are educated beyond their character. They've become career students, and it's a comfortable situation in their life. And they have found themselves living in that circumstance without ever applying the things that they've been blessed to learn. So this was a man with wealth in his coffers and wisdom in his counsel. But here's what it really comes down to. This was a man with weakness in his character. The Bible tells us of how uh, Solomon's heart 
was turned in 1 Kings chapter number 11, but King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go in unto them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. At the end of the day, it's not that Solomon didn't know better, it's that he didn't choose better. We have a world full of people that know better but don't choose better. And only character can change that about us. So Solomon speaks in Proverbs 24 about character. And what he's really talking about is how you can learn about your own character. I'll go ahead and tell you it's hard to know what someone else's character is until they're put to the test. We see this in our, our, our popular political scene all the time. People make promises and promises and promises and promises. But then when placed in the situation to make hard decisions, they always seem astounded that anyone would expect them to do that. It's always funny to me. They always treat it, Brother Ken, like, like it's unfair that they're being held to account. And you're thinking the only reason that you were voted to be there is because you said you'd make these decisions when you got there. The fact is, character is determined not when things are easy, but when things are tough. And it's hard to know a person's character until you see how they are in certain situations. Can I tell you this? Sometimes it's even hard to know your own character until you're put in certain situations. Sometimes you'd think to yourself, I would never do such and such, but then you're placed in that situation and you find yourself more willing to do something than you ever would have thought possible. So how do we know what our character is? Well, I believe our King James Bible tells us. At least in three areas. I don't know that this speaks to the full spectrum of our character, but I, I do think in these three areas we can determine what our metal is, what we're made of, and what our character truly is. So I want you to notice them with me very quickly tonight. Uh, we'll mention these and then we'll be done. Look at verse 10 with me. Now this one is going to seem harsh, but I believe we can give it some Bible context that will bring into clear relief the truth of God here. Verse number 10 says, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. So the first clue to our character the first way in which our character is measured is by our commitment in the day of adversity. Can I tell you, the longer you live in this life, and you don't have to live very long at all, you will have days of adversity. I'm going to say a word about it here in a moment, but that word adversity, it means a tight or a narrow place. You ever heard somebody use this terminology, say, I'm in a tight spot before? Uh, that terminology comes from this good King James Bible word uh, for adversity here. It means to be in a narrow place, in a boxed-in place, in a difficult place, a place that is a challenge to navigate. This is not merely talking about affliction, Brother Ken. It's not just talking about hard times, but it's talking about times of hard choices. I believe we live in a time of adversity. We're having to make decisions today we never thought we'd have to make before. I was the other day in a grocery store and um, they were, you know, ever since the mask thing, about half, half people was wearing them, half wasn't. But I, I was walking through that grocery store and I looked over and everybody, everybody looked like they was stealing stuff if they took their mask off. I'm looking at grown adults that they take their mask off and they go... Afraid somebody's going to get them on Facebook, you know, ruin their life. 
we're having to choose, and I'm not meaning to say that is the most difficult decision we make. I just mean we're daily making decisions that have stakes, that have difficulties, that have risk, both to our own personal integrity and our own personal freedoms. We're living in a day when we're having to make hard choices. We're living in a day where, and we would have never thought we would have been at this place, and I'm thankful for whatever uh, legal uh, cover or, or coverage of liability or whatever you want to call it we have now in our current situation, but I would have never thought, if you had asked me two years ago, if we would ever have to talk about whether meeting together and having church was legal or not, I would have said probably not for another couple decades, but just a few months ago, uh, we were having to have that conversation. I had church members calling me saying, Preacher, what happens if the law shows up? Preacher, what happens if the police roll in? Preacher, do you think what we're doing is legal? And sadly, there were times I had to say, you know, I really don't know if it's legal or not. And you make whatever decision that you have to make, but we're going to be meeting together. These are not easy decisions. We're living in a day of adversity. And you may be living in a day of personal adversity in your life. And Solomon says here that the way you act in that day determines and dictates and discloses who and what you are. Notice a few things that I think we need to mention here if we're going to really understand this. First is the definition of fainting. Now, fainting in your King James Bible don't quite mean fainting that like the way we think. When we think of someone fainting, we think of someone falling unconscious. And that's the reason I say when we first see that verse, it might seem a little harsh because I ain't never known anyone that just said, well, I guess I'll faint and fell over. <laughs> I, I've never, I've not been someone, I don't have a weak constitution. I don't have a weak stomach. I've never been someone uh, that, you know, got weak at the side of blood or anything like that. But I do remember one time I had to go and give blood for some reason. I can't remember what it was. But they sat me in that chair and they said, uh, now, are you, do you pass out? I said, no, I ain't never passed out in my life. They said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm absolutely fine. I, it ain't going to bother me. I mean, I've never passed out. And so they said, okay, Mr. Weber. And they rolled up my sleeve and they took some, some blood. And I was sitting there. And I remember hearing my phone ring in my pocket. And so I, I was sitting there like this. And I pulled the phone out. And I looked down and saw who it was. Knew I wasn't going to answer at that time. And I silenced my phone. And I lifted my head back up. Only it didn't happen that slow. It looked like this. And then back up. Well, now, this may never happen to you, but apparently I don't have enough blood in my body to move that quickly after I have just given blood. Because the next thing I remember was a big old nurse dragging me out of that chair and lifting my legs up above my head and bringing me a Coca-Cola to drink. That's what we think of when we think of fainting. But that's not what it means in your King James Bible. The word faint here means to slacken or to quit means to slow down or to quit. In fact, you'll find it a bunch of different ways in your Bible. In Psalms 37, 8, the psalmist uses it this way, the word cease, like cease and desist, to cease. He used it again in Psalms 138, 8, and he used it this way, he calls it to forsake, to forsake something. And all the way back in Exodus chapter number 4, verse 26, it's used this way with the phrase, to let go of. So if we use the Bible as our dictionary, when we read that word faint, we think of it not in terms of, uh, of passing out, not something beyond your control, not something that is beyond your physical ability, but rather the willful, volitional choice to stop, to run away, and to let go. And Solomon says here 
that if in the day of adversity you make up your mind just to walk away, just to let go, just quit, he said that's an indication of where your strength is. We live in a day where it's easy to quit. I'm going to say that again, man. We live in a day where it's easy to quit. We got this social media thing, and it don't matter what what wicked, ungodly action you're taking, there'll be somebody that did something worse than you that will clap for you when you make that decision. It don't matter what the choice is, there'll be somebody along the line that'll say, you're doing what's best, you're taking care of you, you're thinking of, of what matters, you're thinking of what is important. There will always be somebody, Brother Ken, that will clap for you in your bad decision making. But can I say, it's never the will of God to quit on God. It's never the will of God to quit on God. He didn't quit on you. And it's never the will of God to quit on Him. So the definition of feigning, it means to slacken, to let off, to slow down, or to quit altogether. But now we find something else interesting here. I told you that word adversity means tight or narrow. If thou faint in the day of adversity, when you're in a tight spot, thy strength is small. That word for small there is not the identical word for adversity, but it's very similar and it means very similarly someplace that is tight or narrow. So here's what God's saying here. In the day of tight spaces, if you faint, it's because you were trying to fit your strength into that tight spot. I see in this verse the diminishing fortitude of the quitter. In other words, here's the question. Is your strength only proportional to your struggles or is it sufficient for your success? So much of this is dictated and determined by perspective. Now, somebody's thinking about the New Testament. Somebody's thinking about Brother Paul. And I'm going to say a word about it here in a minute. But can I just say this, that so often it is, we are, we are you remember what the spies said? We preached a little bit about it on Sunday night. You remember what the spies said? We were grasshoppers in our own sight and in theirs. Didn't say we were grasshoppers in their sight and then in ours. Why were they grasshoppers in the giant site? Well, it's not necessarily that they were. In fact, whenever they go into the land of Jericho, you remember that Rahab tells uh, the spies of Joshua, says, we've heard what your God did unto the uh, pagan kings and our hearts melted before us and we were afraid and uh, God had already been plowing that ground and had already been turning the hearts of those uh, pagan people. It was not in the giant site that they were grasshoppers. It was in their own site. What happened? They looked at their fear and they toned down their faith. They looked at their problem and tried to make their capability fit within that realm. And can I just tell you this? I know the Bible says, as your day, so shall your strength be. Uh, but you're going to have to determine, if you're going to live for God, you're going to have to determine you'll do it no matter the circumstances. If, if you only want the commitment to God it takes to just barely get it done, then you won't get it done. When you come to a tight spot, your faith will diminish. You'll shrink from the difficulty and from the challenges. Uh, there are some people that when they get in a tight spot, they get tight too. The right way is to say, I'm going to stay who I am no matter what I face, and God will be sufficient. You know, that's really the question. We see the definition of feigning here and the diminishing of fortitude, but there's sort of a question that I think any Bible student is asking, right? Uh, how do we reconcile this with the New Testament. 
Now, in the New Testament, we're, we're told that we're to quit us like men. We're told that we're to be strong in the Lord. But there seems to be a different spirit when strength is talked about in the New Testament. Somebody's going to say, Preacher, what happens if I want to be strong in the day of adversity and I really have a desire to live for the Lord and do what's right, but I just, I'm just not strong enough. Somebody out there is thinking right now under the sound of my voice, I'd love to be that preacher, but I'm just not that. What do I do if that's me? You know, I remember what Paul said. He talked about a time of adversity in his life. And it related to a health problem he was having. He called it a messenger of Satan. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And you say, well, why did he pray three times? Well, because it didn't get answered the way he wanted the first two times. Things is getting tight, you understand. It's a day of adversity for him. It's a day of challenges and problems and suffering. And the Lord said this to him, said, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength, this is God talking, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now somebody's going to say to me, Toby, I want to be strong, but I can't be strong because I am weak. i got good news for you. You're halfway there. Now, there's somebody out there that's going to say, Preacher, I'm strong enough to face anything. You're the one that has a long ways to go. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not about merely through resolve. That's not how this gets done. It's through reliance. Here's what you have to commit to do. Not to overcome any obstacle that comes along your way. Here's what you have to commit to do. You have to commit to lean on the Lord and His strength regardless of what the obstacle is. And guess what? You don't need strength to do that. You need weakness to do that. See, we're all without excuse. Those that have strength, all you have to do is weaken your strength. You say, how would you do that? Well, quit depending on yourself. Quit trusting in yourself. You ain't going to make your strength go away. Now, God can do that. That's what the psalmist said. He weakened my strength in the way. God can do that if He has to. But hopefully He don't have to weaken your strength. Hopefully He don't have to put you on a sick bed. Hopefully He don't have to put you with debt collectors running you down. Hopefully He don't have to put you with your family in pieces. Hopefully you'll just humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. If He has to, He can weaken your strength. But for those of you that say, I'm strong, preacher, all you have to do is quit depending on your own strength. But now those of you that said, Preacher, I'd love to be strong, but I can't. I'm weak. Well, that's no excuse either. Because God's strength is made perfect in weakness. And you say, well, how, how do I do that, Preacher? Well, Paul showed us. He went on to say this, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Now, that doesn't mean he sat around complaining all the time. He didn't say, I complain in my infirmities. He said, I glory in my infirmities. Now, what does it mean to glory in your infirmities? Well, it means to rejoice in them. It means to brag in them. It means to boast in them. Now, he's not saying, I'm proud that I have this thorn in the flesh. But he's saying, I'm not going to be ashamed of my weakness. Instead, I'm going to rejoice that through this, God has an opportunity to make himself known in my life. It says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and necessities in persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So in other words, for the New Testament believer, it's not just strength of resolve. 
It's, it's strength of, of reliance. It's, it's not strength as we would think of it. It's surrender. And it is the determination and commitment to rely upon the Lord in those days of adversity. Whether you'll trust God with your hard times says a lot about whether you trust Him at all. It's not easy. I know it ain't. <laughs> Somebody's going to say, Preacher, you don't know what it's like. Yeah, and you don't either. I don't know what it's like for you, and you don't know what it's like for me. I've been through things you ain't been through, and you've been things uh, through I ain't been uh, that I ain't been But hey, listen, ain't none of us been through anything that Jesus ain't been through, and He has promised His grace is sufficient. So let's go ahead and just put aside, and let's just say we can all trust Him. We can all trust Him. And that's the measure of our character. Do you trust Him with your hard times? Look at verse 11 with me. We'll move along quickly. Verse 11 says, If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain. Now, I know we're stopping in the middle of a sentence there. He goes on to basically say, not only does this disclose something about you, but he goes on to say that's a foolish thing to do and God's going to judge us. And We'll say a word about it before we're done. But let's stop and think about what he's saying here. He's saying that we have a responsibility to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain. So I would say this, not only uh, does our commitment in the day of adversity disclose something about our character, but I would say our compassion in the day of opportunity. When we have the chance to do something, do we take that chance? Now, I think it's important that we understand the context here. I think very often people try to say that God said more than what He did say. And I think we need to be very cautious about that. We need to find out what God said, not what we think He should have said or what we think He might have said, but what did God say. So notice with me first the description of the distraught here. Now, this is not just anyone. God could have said, if thou forbear to help someone that needs help. That's not what God said. He could have said that. It's not what he did say. What he did say is, if thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain. Can I tell you a nasty habit that politicians have? Anytime they want what's in your wallet, they'll tell you you're not a good Christian unless you're willing to bankrupt yourself by giving your money to them, which they will then distribute to other people. They don't really want you being charitable and that's why they'll tell you they want charitable giving to be taxed. They don't really want you to be charitable. <laughs> they don't think you're responsible enough to be charitable. They don't want you giving money to those in need. They want you giving money to them so that they can give money to those in need. And I think anybody that doesn't trust a person to be charitable ought to be suspect to some degree. Politicians have a nasty way of doing that. And they'll say things like this, well, don't you care? Don't you care? Living in a bigger house than you or I'll ever have. But they'll say, don't you care? You know? No, God is not saying here that it is the responsibility. People say things like this. Well, you know, you, you can't be pro-life because you're not pro-taking care of someone from the cradle to the grave. Well, despite the fallacy and the, the idiocy of that argument, which is idiotic all across the board, nowhere does it become the responsibility. Listen now, we're veering a little bit, but I want you to hear me. The valuing life, human life, does not mean it's your responsibility then to take care of a person from cradle to grave. I Listen, I don't think it's my responsibility to take care of every homeless person in East Tennessee. I also don't want them round up and shot. <laughs> right? And I don't think we have to conflate those two things, you understand. So I don't think that what's being said here is you as a Christian have responsibility to help in any way anytime that you're asked 
in every way, shape, fashion, or form. I think God could have said that if he had wanted to say that. But that's not what God said. That's what politicians say. God gives very distinct description about the person he's talking about. So let's notice a few things about this description. Number one, you know what I notice? I notice they are guiltless. Now, I didn't say they were perfect. But as regards their current situation, they are guiltless. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because it says they are drawn unto death. So we're not talking about people that are running headlong towards death. We're not talking about people that are trying to make shipwreck or destroy their own life. But we're talking about people that have had a rope slung around them and are being carted away or being taken away or being drawn unto a place of death. Very possibly, and I would say very probably, uh, who Solomon has in mind here would be captives from a battlefield. People being drawn unto death. The idea here being that they have not chosen this for themselves and they've not done anything that have brought this upon them, but rather they have been laid hold of and they have been taken to that place. I wish I could tell you that people don't fall into situations not of their own fault, but they do, and you know they do, and I know they do. I, this is part of the reason I, I'm very libertarian in my in my worldview. I am not a libertarian because I believe God has something to say about things like pornography and homosexuality and drugs and things like that. And libertarian would say that God has no say, or he would say there's not a God, or if he is a God, he should stay out of the state house or whatever. I'm not a libertarian. I I I, I do believe that less government is a, is a good thing. One of the things that keeps me from being a libertarian is I think any pragmatic, practical person understands there are people in our society who of no fault of their own find themselves in situations completely unable to care for themselves. I don't believe it is some high crime against conservatism to acknowledge that truth. There are times that people of no choosing of their own find themselves in that situation. Now, here's what a politician wants to do. They want to come along and say, because there are one or two people that are like that, give me all your money and let's pay for everybody, regardless of whether they work, whether they do this, whether they do that. No, I think what Solomon is pointing to here is guiltless people. In other words, not people that... Uh, from their own bad decision-making, from their own sin, from their own unwise life, have brought heartache upon themselves and are unwilling to change. I think he's talking about people that have found themselves in this circumstance. Notice number two, they are helpless. He says they are ready to be slain. There's not somebody else that they are waiting for to come in and step in. No, Solomon, uh, the person, the deliverer here, he paints as someone who is the only help that they have. They cannot save and rescue themselves. And then number three, they are hopeless. So how do you know that? Well, here's what they are threatened with. Death and being slain. So here's somebody that has not put themselves in this situation. They have found themselves in this situation of no action of their own. They are, uh, they have no time to wait. There is no opportunity for someone else to come in and they cannot help themselves. And they're not just uh, facing hard times. They're not just facing difficulty, but they're getting ready to be put to death. That's the person that Solomon describes. Now, there's two questions I think that leads us to ask. Number one, is anybody like that? I think there are people like that in the world that we live in. I think there are people like that. I think there are people that have not chosen the life that they find themselves in, but have been drawn unto that place. I think there are people, and by the way, I'm not preaching a gospel message, but I think that there's probably a gospel message here. That's not to say a sinner is not guilty. A sinner is guilty. But you understand it's not the actions that he's committing. It's the sin nature and sin condition that he was born into. We've not all sinned after the similitude of Adam. Nevertheless, death passed upon all men in that all have sinned. It's not to say a sinner is guiltless, but it is to say uh, that uh, they've not chosen to be born into sin, 
That's the product of their depraved, fallen condition. They certainly are helpless. They can't help themselves. And they certainly are hopeless. They're facing death far worse than physical death. But I think in many myriad ways, there are people that fit this description. Here's the second question. Uh, The first question is, is there anybody like this? And the answer is yes. The second question is, is everybody like this? And the answer is no. You and I have to have the discernment. And here's the good thing. We don't necessarily have to rely on our own wisdom. You know why? Because the Spirit of God indwells us to guide us, to lead us into all truth. And here's the danger, though. When we find ourselves faced with those individuals, no one would blame us for forbearing. No one would blame us for walking away. No one would think less of us for saying it's none of our business. What do we do? It's not going to benefit us in any way, shape, fashion, or form. But character would dictate that we show compassion. See, here's the, here's the decision of the deliverer here. He has two, two choices. One, to save the sufferer. He can choose to do what is within his capability to alleviate that situation. Here's the second one. Here's really what I want to say about it. And that's to suppress their sympathy. I'm interested by that word forbear because it means to restrain. Now, there are certain things you don't have to restrain me from and certain things you do have to restrain me from. If I go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, depending on what's on it, you may have to forbear me. You take me to a salad bar, temptation just don't live there. In other words, the presence of this word forbear implies an inward compulsion towards something. If you have to restrain yourself from helping, it tells you there's something inside that makes you want to help. Now, I don't know what Solomon was thinking about when he pinned this down, but I sure enough know what the Holy Ghost was thinking about, at least for you and I sitting here 2,000 years deep into the church age today, because you know what? There is one that lives within us that has a desire to help those that are in need. Cynicism can become an anesthetic that keeps us from listening to the Spirit of God as He guides us. I battled with this. I, I was worked at a church in a, in, a, in a poor part of town and you would forever have people walk up to you at all times. You'd be walking in. There'd be people walk up to you wanting to borrow a little bit of money, wanting to have a little bit of help. And you have to guard yourself from becoming one of those cynics that wants to chase them off with a broom and be mean to them and be ugly to them because you've been burnt one too many times by them. I'm not suggesting we have to turn our pockets out to everyone that would seek what we have. But I am saying we ought to guard ourselves lest we become such cynics that we can't even see a world that's hurting around us. Do we have compassion in the day of opportunity? And then finally, notice with me in closing, verse 12. Solomon says, if thou sayest, behold, we knew it not. Now, it's apparent he's reflecting or he's referencing back to verse 11. He's talking about the same individual. If that person forbore or uh, chose not to restrain himself from delivering that person, and then when questioned about it, says, behold, we knew it not, he goes on to ask, Three questions in regards to it. But here is what really I think the substance of it is. This fellow that chose not to help has been caught. Somebody saw it happen and walked up to him and said, Hey, 
You could have saved that person. Why didn't you do something about it? That person replies back to them, Hey, we knew it not. We did not know what was going on. Now, it's obvious from this verse where Solomon's leading us, at least, is to imagine that the person that asks him, why didn't you do something about it? It's not just any individual, but it's the God of heaven. So, in other words, here's the paradigm. When faced before God, you are asked, why did you not do this? How will you respond? And here, I think, is the point. I think confession in the day of accountability says a lot about our character. Will we be honest when it's not easy to be honest? We live in a society that claims it values honesty. But let's be honest. This world does not value honesty. It values a certain theme and a certain line of thinking and ideology and talking point. And in fact, those that would promote and propagate and promulgate this idea of tolerance of every idea are the most rabid and vitriolic when an idea pops up that is contrary to what they approve of. They would like the Overton window to be closed to the size of a pinhead and nobody allowed to talk about anything except what has been approved through the proper channels. We live in a world that doesn't value honesty. And so we have learned to lie when it's convenient. We probably all do it a little bit if we were to be honest. We probably all shade things and twist things and turn things and conveniently leave things out. And the degree to which we will abuse the truth when we are put on the spot says a lot about our character. Now, notice a few things here. I think these three questions that he asks, the first is, doth not he that pondereth the hearts consider it? The second is, he that keepeth thy soul doth not he know it? And the third is, shall not he render to every man according to his works? I think Solomon is laying out an argument for why we should just go ahead and be honest with God, be honest with ourselves, and be honest with others. Here's why. Number one, to feign ignorance, to be dishonest with yourself about your sins, about your unrighteousness, about your character flaws, about your failures... Number one is faithless. And here's why. Because God watches. It's apparent all through Scripture. God watches all of us. He sees us. We learn it as a little child. Probably if you were raised in a Christian home, one of the first things that your parents told you is that God sees everything you do. And yet somehow we reach a place in life that we believe we can somehow pull a cover over us and hide what we've done. Really, we're not hiding it from God, and we even know that. What we're hiding is the fact that God sees it from ourselves. <laughs> we're not hiding what we did from God. We're not so dumb as to think that can be done. Instead, we're hiding the fact that God sees it from ourselves so that we can live with it long enough to enjoy our sin. It's a faithless thing, because we know that God watches. Doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? God's paying attention to what you and I do. And so the reason it discloses our character, whether we'll be honest with God and honest with ourselves, is it tells us how much we value God's opinion of us. If we won't be honest with God or honest with ourselves, it tells us that we don't really care what God's opinion is because we know that God already knows about it anyway. One of the wisest things I ever heard a man say was in an altar call. He said, you might as well go ahead and be honest with God because he knows about it anyway. That's simple, but oh, it's profound. Number two, he points out that it's futile. He says, he that keepeth thy soul doth not he know it. 
it's futile because God already knows. Go ahead and tell Him. Go ahead and be honest. I always think it's so funny when people, and I understand when little kids say it or, or new believers say it, but I always think it's funny when, and my flesh says this sometimes, and yours probably does too, when we'll think things like this, well, I don't know how to pray. You ever think that? You ever heard someone else say that? I don't know how to pray. And really, what a funny statement that is. It's almost impossible to not know how to pray. Now, I understand the importance of having a right prayer life, and I understand the importance of understanding what God wants out of our prayer life. But prayer at its foundational, fundamental core is just talking to God. How funny that we'd say we don't know how to do that, being as God already knows what we want to say before we even say it. Our Heavenly Father knoweth what we have need of before we even ask. So to, to lie to God is pointless because God already knows. Number three, listen, it's foolish. It's faithless because God watches. It's futile because God already knows. And it's foolish because God judges. Shall not He render to every man according to His works? It's funny. All we have to do... I, I deal with this with my boys sometimes or my wife probably deals with it more than I do. But we'll tell our littlest one, Schofield, we did it earlier today. We were trying to get him to eat lunch. And I don't know why my kids just, just they've always battled about They go through a period where they'll, they'll eat anything. They'll eat an old shoe. They'll eat, they'll eat the plaster off the walls. And then it's like they wake up one day and say, all right, we're going to fight about this. That's it. For, for six months, I don't want to eat anything. And you can't make me. And if you try, it's just going to be the end of the world. And so, you know, we, we've been wallering with him about getting him to eat. And we'll say things like this. We'll say, all you have to do is eat, and we'll turn your program back on. All you have to do is eat, and you can go in there and play with Bubba in the playroom. All you have to do is eat, and we'll give you the toy back. Like we're trying to poison him or something. Now, that's funny, man. Think about God. He sits there and says, if you wait until you see me face to face... Before you deal with this sin, there'll be a reckoning. You'll lose rewards. You'll have to live with missed opportunities. You'll live day by day with this hanging like a cloud over our relationship. And, and, and you'll miss my power and my favor in your life. And he says, all you have to do is confess it, forsake it, and ask forgiveness for it. It's all you have to do. And we say, mm-mm. If we confess our sins, not if we climb a mountain, not if we drink up the ocean, not if we run around the planet, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you know what? You might as well go ahead and confess it because it'd be foolish to stand before Christ with unconfessed sin. And all you have to do is tell God something He already knows about anyway and ask His forgiveness and turn from that sin. Let's bow together this evening. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open, and you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. You can respond in obedience right now unto Him. And I encourage you to do that. Don't, don't even give the devil another second or two. Go ahead and just respond in obedience unto Him if He spoke your heart. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.